Welcome to Ana, Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Shane Brady, humanitarian and co-founder of Democracy for Burma. Shane discusses the initiatives he has been involved with post-coup and offers some interesting views on how organizations and groups might act to help restore democracy in Myanmar. Let's start the conversation. Hi. Hey, Shane, how are you? How's it going, Suzanne? Good. Good. How are you? Good. You're not feeling the best today? Well, you know, it's winter in Sydney. And I went out, you know, you never know what to wear in Sydney, right? So, you know, it's kind of like Ireland, except the winter is like the summer. So, like, you don't know what to wear. And yesterday I went out and um, I wasn't appropriately dressed. So I have a bit of a cold. Um, Hi, Ruth. Morning. <laughs> so I, I thought we'd just start, Jane, with, like, you telling us your connection to Myanmar or where, where it started for you when you first uh, got involved in, in Myanmar. Sure. So... I first arrived in Myanmar in early 2013 uh, to take up a position with Trokra, which is an Irish NGO, Caritas Ireland. And at the time, Trokra was leading a pretty significant response to the IDP crisis in Kachin State and Northern Shan State. So I was working as the manager of that uh, response to the IDP crisis in Kachin and Northern Shan State. That was my, that, I did that for about three years. Um, worked a lot with a lot of local organizations. We worked in partnership. We didn't implement directly. So I worked for approximately three years in that role. And then I took up the role of humanitarian program manager with Save the Children uh, based in Sitway in Rakhine State. And I was later promoted to the position of head of programs um, for um, Save the Children International, uh, International across Myanmar. So we had humanitarian programming across the country. So that was um, how I initially became involved in Myanmar. I was there for approximately five years in total. I left in 2018. I went back briefly to do a to do a, a very brief job um, in 2019-2020. And since then, I've been working mostly in Iran. But when the coup took place, whilst I was living here in Australia, based in Australia, but working on Iran, um, I immediately started networking with friends who had been working in Myanmar. And we began to look at different ways that we could support the pro-democracy um, voices in Myanmar. And what we came up with here in Sydney was um, a campaign group, which we have named Democracy for Burma, hashtag D4B. So a group of us, um, all of whom have connections to Myanmar, set up this campaign group and we've been engaged in a range of different activities, quite a bit of advocacy. Um, we've been putting together some op-eds. We've done a lot of national TV and radio interviews. Um, we held an exhibition which lasted for about one month, which is about to come to an end. And uh, we've also done a series of podcasts with um, academics and with uh, diplomats and uh, activists from Myanmar um, to, to try and keep the topic in the public view and to try to address really key issues such as the uh, recognition of the national unity government and also 
the need to put together a viable humanitarian response strategy. So that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's a lot. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. we were, yeah, we were, I was just, I, I knew kind of obviously that you were doing the, the D4B, uh, and those, um, panel discussions are fantastic and, and really something I think government officials should be listening to, you know, people who need to know uh, more about Myanmar and what needs to be done. Um, because there, there's so many great voices that we've had a listen. Um, in terms yeah. of, um, Australia, we were just briefly discussing before, uh, you came on about, the response there, it, it seems to not have been what people were expecting. Uh, Australia seems to be quiet, uh, since the coup happened that, uh, kind of a disappointing response. Is that still the same now? Is that changing? It's, it's pretty much the same. I think it's important to note that Australia has had a, a more constant diplomatic presence in Myanmar across the decades than most other Western nations. So they, the, their position on, on Myanmar has been one which is somewhat, how to say, it's been a little bit neutral, a little bit kind of hands off. They have provided a lot of humanitarian funding and I mean, they have been engaged with, uh, engaged in advocacy and they have been supportive of democratic reforms. But when it comes to this particular crisis, actually Australia was very quiet in the beginning. They, uh, there were a number of statements that were issued condemning the coup, um, which were, um, which were signed by embassies, Western embassies in Myanmar, but the Australian government neglected to put their name to those statements. They took over a month to formally end their military cooperation program with the Myanmar military. And whilst they did have a parliamentary review of the Australian government's response and they took input as to, you know, how it could be improved. They still haven't really acted at all. For example, they have sanctions that have been in place for the past five years or so on a limited number of individuals um, involved in the Myanmar military, but they haven't expanded those sanctions since the coup. And for example, Senior General Min Aung Hlaing, who is the currently the dictator running the junta, um, is still not facing any sanctions in Australia. They, what they've done basically is they have handed over responsibility for the, for responding to the crisis to ASEAN, as have many other nations and also, you know, the UN Security Council is kind of pushing things towards ASEAN. So it's been a little bit disappointing. They did uh, earmark $5 million for humanitarian response, but that needs to be provided through ASEAN. And ASEAN is not particularly well equipped to respond to a crisis like this. The humanitarian function of, of ASEAN is aimed at kind of addressing uh, natural disasters rather than these kind of man-made conflict situations. So yeah, it has been disappointing and they've come under quite a bit of pressure domestically over their failure to take a stronger stance on what's happening in Myanmar. So I think one of the, the reasons given um, has been that you know, they need to be part of, they need to have good relations, I guess, with the military in order to be able to have an impact. So they didn't really want to mess that up, yeah. or, or certainly is what's been said. Um, but yet there is an Australian uh, citizen under arrest in insane prison. 
So obviously they don't have a lot of influence or he would not still be sitting in insane prison is what we, we can't help thinking. Yeah, I mean, that's true. They have argued that they are taking a kind of a soft approach um, in order to maintain influence, which is why they've been speaking to senior figures within the Tatmadaw. But indeed, a number of people have pointed out that the level of influence that they're trying to maintain, if that's what they're trying to do, is insignificant since they're unable to make any progress in terms of getting their own uh, Australian citizen released. So, yeah, I mean, Sean Turnell, he's, uh, he's an Australian economist. He is a close advisor and confident to Aung San Suu Kyi, but he hasn't done anything wrong and he should be released. And the Australian government, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't think that, that their strategy is appropriate in this instance because Sean Turnell is still under arrest. Uh, no progress has been made. I was just reading about that um, and I was, I was saying to Suzanne, I was just, they've made two phone calls from what I just read, which is pretty shocking that they've got a national in insane prison that they'd not heard from. I mean, he was arrested back in February 6th and it's a hell of a lot of time and he doesn't go to trial till next week and it's a closed door trial and they've made two phone calls. Like, I would be absolutely, is it making news in, in Australia? Is it being reported for? Not really. I mean... <laughs> Like the fact of the matter is that, you know, awareness of the situation in Myanmar kind of ebbs and flows with the, with the news coverage. So if something major happens, like, I mean, we had that period where the Tatmadaw was murdering dozens of people a day. Um, and that was making the, the news here a lot, but you know, news coverage has died down quite significantly. And I, I, you know, I get the sense that the Australian government, as well as many other governments, are kind of quietly hoping that this will just go away and they don't have to deal with it. That's the that's the sense that I get. I, I feel like they have kind of decided that the democratic forces will be unable to defeat the Tatmadaw, and um, in that in that sense, then it doesn't make sense for them to push too hard back against the Tatmadaw because they may have to deal with them in the future. So it's almost like they're kind of accepting the fact that they will just end up having to be pragmatic and to deal with the Tatmadaw. That's the impression that I get. Like if we look at um, other countries, like you know, I think you mentioned earlier, Ruth, about Japan, uh, and they've managed to get a citizen released. And we saw um, an American journalist freed last week. I know there's still one in custody as well. But it seems like even though they've, you know, particularly America, have taken quite a strong stance on the Tatmadaw, they have still had better results than, than Australia in terms of, of getting citizens out of prison. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. But I think, you know, the issue with Sean Turnell is basically that because he's an economist, he has a lot of information that can be damaging to the Tatmadaw. He has a lot of information about their um, economic activities, you know, with these different conglomerates that they that they control. So I I feel that it's going to be a challenge to get Sean Turnell released in any case because he is of significant strategic importance to to the Tatmadaw. It's kind of like he he knows too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And then um, in terms of what you guys have been doing, and tell us a little bit about the, exhi the exhibition that you've hosted uh, and where, where that idea came about and, and how you got everyone involved. 
Yeah, so back in the day when I was first hanging out in Myanmar, when I was working in, in Myanmar based in Yangon, the, the country hadn't really opened up quite yet um, when I first went there. So there weren't a lot of opportunities for, for socializing. There weren't, I mean, there was a handful of nightclubs and a couple of bars, but a lot of the internationals, a lot of expatriates would socialize at different art galleries, you know, particularly Pansanan Gallery down on Pansanan Street. And they would have like social events where people would, were foreigners and Myanmar people would come together and discuss art and discuss politics and, and so forth and just kind of socialize and get together and brainstorm and, you know, network. And, you know, Pansanan Gallery, that whole scene made a really big impact on me and on a lot of other people. And when the coup took place, I reconnected with um, a friend, Craig Hodges, who, who later became a co-founder of Democracy for Burma. And on the second occasion that we met here in Sydney, we went to a gallery opening and Craig told me that a, a, a person he had just met was um, had a gallery nearby and he invited him to come along as well. We got chatting and we discovered that all three of us had actually worked in Myanmar, including the owner of the other gallery. And um, we went and we hung out with him at his gallery for a little while and we had a chat and we discussed the importance of initiatives like the the kind of social nights at Pansalan Gallery in Yangon. And we decided that that perhaps art would be a good way to raise awareness of um, of the situation in Yangon, the situation in Myanmar. And we initially started out with having live video links between Pansanan Gallery and Art Syndicate Gallery in Sydney. But that didn't last very long because the situation deteriorated quite quickly. So it wasn't safe anymore for, for the people at Pansanan Gallery to uh, to do the live streams. So we we ended up basically... Because Saxon has access to the gallery, and we've been, and uh, D4B has been using it for meetings and so forth. And we ended up deciding to have an exhibition there. We, I reached out to some gallery owners in, um, in Myanmar, um, and also to a friend who was involved with the Raise Three Fingers Collective, the art collective. So we were able to get quite a, quite a bit of protest art from the Raise Three Fingers Collective, from these kind of, underground protest art workshops in Yangon. And we also managed to to bring the Chinese political dissident and artist uh, Badiu Cao on board. Um, he's been involved with the in the Look Tea movement. He's been involved in the protests in Hong Kong. He's originally Chinese, but you know he's he, he was given refuge here in Australia. So it was great to have him on board. We had on the opening day we had the former Australian Minister for Foreign Affairs, Bob Carr uh, participate. We had news coverage. We were on um, SBS World News as well. We had like quite a significant piece on that. And so it's been good because people can just wander into the gallery, take a look at the art. The art is for sale, and we give. Obviously, we don't take anything ourselves, but fifty percent of the proceeds go to the artist, and the other fifty percent go to the civil disobedience movement. And we we also decided that you know, in addition to having the the exhibition at the gallery, we should also use it as the it's a space where we could have discussions. So then we decided to have these podcasts. And the whole point of the podcast was to bring people together who are experts in Myanmar. You know, we had academics, we had diplomats, we had, we've had two former Australian ambassadors to Myanmar uh, participate. We've had uh, a member of the independent fact-finding mission on Myanmar take part. We've had 
the spokesman for the committee representing the Piron Sioux Lutar participates, a bunch of academics. It's been really good. So we've recorded those conversations and put them up as podcasts to just to, to make sure that those voices are heard and those discussions are heard. And it's been very well received. Just where can people go and watch or listen, I should say, uh, to those podcasts? So you can go to www.democracyforburma.com.au. That's our website. And we have links to all of the podcasts on the website. But you can also, you know, anybody listening can go onto Facebook and they can just search for the hashtag D4B and they should be able to find it also on Facebook. Brilliant. Um, and do you see that as um, a, a new way of kind of generating discussion about Myanmar. I mean, moving away from traditional like street protests and, and this kind of like, it seems what you guys did really manage to get some publicity and get people interested. Do you think this might be a way forward for people listening, maybe in other countries looking for ideas to raise awareness? Yeah, I really do. You know, I participate in almost all of the protests um, on the Myanmar issue that are held here in Sydney. But the fact, of the, the fact of the matter is that they tend to be quite brief. And yeah, I mean, there's a, a minor level of awareness that's generated by people seeing people protest in the street. And if they get media coverage, well, then that's also quite good. But the format uh, for those rallies and protests is not really suitable to generating dialogue and discussion and really bringing people into the same room to sit down and exchange ideas. And part of the part of the benefit of having these podcasts is that you know we've been doing it in person in most cases. Most of the guests have actually been with us in the gallery, and it's brilliant because we get to meet some really really influential people, experts in their fields. You know, we have we like I said, we have politicians, we have diplomats, and it gives them an opportunity to sit down in the same room together and, and chat about these issues. And I think that's kind of unusual these days because normally the way the the way the media works. They might get five minutes on a radio station or they might get 10 minutes on a podcast or 15 minutes on a podcast, but we do it really long form. So it's usually 90 minutes or maybe a little bit more than 90 minutes. And we found that the people who take part in the panel discussions, they tend to stay in touch afterwards and they, they connect with each other on Myanmar. So I think it's a really good way to, to build networks and to get the message out and to, to maintain awareness. I would encourage anybody actually who's in a position to host an art exhibition to reach out to us and we'll be happy to put them in contact with the artists and we have huge volumes of protest art and we will be able to support anybody who wants to replicate what we've done in procuring the artwork that they need for the exhibition. Shane, what's the reaction then to people when they hear that in Myanmar, like, you can be killed for your art? Like, you know, we have poets murdered, we have artists, actors, actresses, anyone who even might be remotely influential in any any way is either detained, killed, tortured. I mean, it's quite a shocking thing, um, but it still doesn't seem to resonate with people. We've entered a phase now where, you know, the military tried to put an end to the uprising through the use of extreme force they killed you know almost a thousand people they've jailed somewhere between four or five thousand people and there's been a lot of very graphic imagery and video footage showing the tatmadaw and the police engaged in the in these um these crimes against humanity you know but 
the fact of the matter is, you know, you're, you have to, you have to understand that members of the public who are not linked with Myanmar have limited bandwidth for what they can deal with. And, you know, they, they also are aware of conflicts that are happening in Syria, conflicts that are happening in Yemen, you know, unrest that's happening in places like Hong Kong and in Belarus. And it can be, it can be really difficult to engage people. Of course, people are shocked at what they hear, but it doesn't go much further than that. You know, they, yeah, people, people feel sorry, but they don't feel like there's much that they can do to stop it. And a lot of people, you know, life is kind of difficult enough as it is without trying to bear the burden of what's happening in a foreign country. So I think we have to be, we have to be somewhat understanding. And actually, you know, my view is that if you want to change the approach of the government in, on a particular issue, say this, this particular issue, the issue of Myanmar, then you have to think about how best you can do this. And of course, one way is to raise awareness amongst members of the general public which is time consuming and costly and it isn't easy. So another thing that you can do is you can look at the people who are able to, who are best able to influence decision makers and you can kind of target those people who you think are likely to have the, the, the biggest impact on policy. So that's why we've been targeting the very high profile former diplomats, politicians, current politicians, members of state parliament, because it's easier for us to focus on a smaller group of people and to bring them in. They already have the awareness of the knowledge and they already have a significant, a significant enough profile to, to actually speak out and influence the government's policy. They also tend to have contacts within DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and they have other contacts within government. So my view is that while it's important to maintain awareness of what's happening in Myanmar amongst the general public, it's more important to focus on people who have the ability to really influence policy. And that's what we've been trying to do. Yeah, that's a good point that you made. I'm just thinking as well in terms of like your background, obviously, is humanitarian. So you must be quite worried about the situation for the IDPs at the minute with so many people fleeing their homes. And we've heard like that it's really difficult even for aid agencies to get any supplies or resources to people. And it's monsoon season right now as well. So probably like the worst time you could be fleeing your home or in a jungle. Yeah, look, it's a difficult situation because the humanitarian organizations that have been working in Myanmar for the past or whatever period of time, some of them have been there for several decades. They've been working in a context where there is a transition ongoing in that country. And when it comes to natural disasters, it's been relatively easy to respond to natural disasters. But the fact of the matter is that most of the humanitarian crises in Myanmar, and there are quite a number, are directly linked to the Tatmadaw. So, for example, if you look at the displacement crisis in Kachin State, which has about 100,000 people already displaced long-term now, that's um, that displacement crisis is a result of Tatmadaw policy and Tatmadaw actions against the, the Kachin people. You also have you know, the same thing in, in Karen State. You've got the same thing in Rakhine State, where you've got the Tatmadaw basically engaged in a conflict against the ethnic Rakhine and engaged in a long-standing strategy of ethnic cleansing against the um, Rohingya Muslims. 
So the fact of the matter is that, that the humanitarian organizations have always, over the past decade or so, found it difficult to deliver humanitarian assistance to those who need it in a principled manner because they've been restricted by the uh, by the Tatmadaw in doing so. There's been quite a bit of misdirection of aid. Um, there, there's been quite a few groups of people who have been excluded from receiving humanitarian aid. And right now, the humanitarian organizations that have a presence in Yangon are faced with a difficult situation because if they decide that they're going to support the pro-democracy forces or if they decide that they want to provide humanitarian assistance in areas where there's been fighting involving the Tatmadaw, the likelihood is that they will be prevented from doing so by the Tatmadaw. And if they try to do it covertly, the likelihood is that they will be severely punished by the Tatmadaw for doing so. I believe that international non-governmental organizations with the humanitarian mandates in Myanmar need to now consider removing, withdrawing their staff for now, and they need to consider supporting a humanitarian response and supporting pro-democracy forces from outside the country. And they need to rely upon the significant capacity of local organizations to do the actual implementation. I think I get the sense that a lot of international NGOs, they kind of would like to stay and do something. But to be quite frank, I don't expect them to be able to achieve anything. And if they insist on remaining in the country and trying to trying to program, I think that would be counterproductive. So in terms of you think counterproductive in the sense that they will be working with the military, like that they will be legitimizing them by by, by working with them? Well, 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 yeah, they'll most, they'll most likely have to sign an MOU with the State Administration Council, which would immediately alienate them from the people that are trying to help because nobody supports the State Administration Council. It would also do more harm than good in the sense that the value for money, I mean, if, if an international NGO is going to be supporting international staff who are going to be basing themselves in Yangon and need to be housed, who need to have, you know, other costs and benefits included, it becomes very expensive and a lot of the money just gets kind of spent on overheads and um, on expenses and you have like a, an ever reducing amount that's actually reaching the ground. So I think in this instance, I think international NGOs and UN agencies has it, they, they have a role to play, but I, I would prefer to see that as a supportive role, a role where they support local organizations in implementation. And I would like to see them hand over more autonomy to local organizations if we want to see a, an effective humanitarian response. But I think at the same time, I think like, I mean, from a, an organizational perspective, it's, it's very often difficult for NGOs who are presented with an opportunity to get funding to work in a particular place to turn that opportunity down. So I think you will have organizations that just decide to, to be there because it makes sense financially. And in terms of like your experience working there, what is the biggest need people have in times of crises or when, you know, in these ethnic areas in particular? Like what is the, is it food? Is it like housing? Like what do you find is medical care? I mean, first of all, if a, if a person is displaced, they're going to need the basics. They're going to need food and water. They're going to need shelter. They're going to need access to adequate, you know, bathing facilities, uh, toilet facilities. 
And, you know, in most cases uh, where, where, where people are displaced, they don't have any access to livelihood, so they would need ongoing support. In some cases, yes, people would need medical care, medical support. That's also important. Also, you know, general kind of household items and hygiene items, you know, hygiene kits, like they'll need to have basics like soap and toothbrushes and, and sufficient clothing and stuff like that, because a lot of people will have left with just the clothes on their back and maybe a few belongings that they're able to take with them. So they're in need of basically everything. And depending on how long they're displaced, you know, you then encounter a need for education. So you'll need to set up temporary learning spaces, provide training to volunteers who can run classes for the kids if the teachers aren't there. And so there's, there's a lot that's actually required. But yeah, primarily, I suppose, Temporary shelter kits, non-food items like, for example, cooking utensils and jerry cans to carry water. And then, like I said, p- potentially the construction of, of wells and the construction of latrines and, and that type of thing. That's what's, that's what's generally needed. And in terms of disease, I mean, I guess malaria, dengue, these are real concerns um, for those people. Yeah, I mean... Malaria, dengue are, are, are certainly concerned, so they would need to ideally have access to mosquito nets as well. But, you know, I suppose a more significant um, health issue is going to be diarrhea, for example. These waterborne diseases, because people are not going to have access to sufficient clean drinking water, they're not going to have access to sufficient water and soap to, to wash. And in those kind of cases, you get a lot of waterborne diseases. And um, that can be extremely debilitating, you know, like if you have an outbreak of acute watery diarrhea, I mean, people can actually die from dehydration as a result of that. So, so yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the health status of, of IDPs, it's something that requires an awful lot of focus. And, you know, a lot of that's going to be around public health. It's going to be access to bathing facilities, access to toilets, access to hygiene materials like soap and towels and that kind of thing. Are you shocked that Myanmar is here in 2021? Like, is this shocking for you or did you see signs of this coming? Are you not surprised? I mean, I'm not surprised. I can't say that I saw signs of it coming because I wasn't really following things that closely. I knew that the the election had been, you know, a major victory for the NLD. Um, but it, it certainly doesn't surprise me that this has happened because the military in Myanmar can't really be trusted to keep their word on anything. And basically, this is a repetition of, of what's happened several times in Myanmar's past. So it's perfectly in line with with the trend. But I hope that in, on, on this um, occasion that the will of the people and their tenacity in terms of confronting the state administration council with the civil disobedience movement and frustrating them. And now the emergence of these new ethnic armed groups, or rather these new kind of people's defense forces, these civilian militias. I hope that whatever the outcome is, obviously I hope that it, that it can be resolved as peacefully as possible, but I hope this is the last time that Myanmar has to go through this. And I think that it may actually be the case that Myanmar comes through this as a, as a stronger more resilient, more mature democracy than it was before the coup happened. Apologies if you've already answered this. I'm frantically trying to get off an email that um, a response I got from the UK, because they've just cut their aid to to Myanmar. And the response that they gave was that they're going to support the 
NGOs and the, the UN and the Red Cross, and they've redirected all, all aid that they're giving away from anything that's going to support the military. Just going back to what you said, is this a realistic possibility, do you think? Is, is, are they able to do this? Are they able to sideline the military like that? I think probably what's happening there is that these donors have kind of ongoing projects that they're funding, which are kind of development focused. So like they might be doing some child protection work or they'll do some work on gender-based violence or they'll be doing some work on kind of women's issues and so forth. And probably what's happening is that the uh, donors have said, instead of working on on the projects that we had initially intended, maybe perhaps their humanitarian programs or whatever, and that they can't implement now, or perhaps they might have had uh, bilateral projects that they were funding with the government, with the NLD government. And instead of using the money for to providing that money to the state administration council, what they're probably doing is telling the international organizations and UN agencies that they have a lot of flexibility with that money now. And you are probably, you'll probably find that there may be cases where the, these organizations have been able to adapt that programming to, to provide support for people affected by the coup. But that type of, of initiative is quite limited. As you can see, there are still tens of thousands of people displaced freshly throughout the country who are not getting anything. So, so for me, I think withholding resources from the state administrative council or from the Tatmadaw is, of course, a good thing. But I think it's also important to be proactive about trying to find an appropriate way to address humanitarian needs, because I don't think that this strategy of asking international NGOs to adapt their programming is going to be particularly effective. It's, it's effective from the political point of view, because it allows the donors to say, look, we're not providing any money to the Tatmadaw or to the state administrative council. So it's, it's an effective strategy in that sense, but it's not an effective strategy in terms of meeting humanitarian needs. So I think they need to do more. I think they need to, I think they need to take a serious look. They, they need to connect with the, with the deputy minister for humanitarian affairs and disaster management, um, from the national unity government, because I know that they are currently working on a humanitarian strategy. So they need to reach out to them. I think. It's a mistake not to reach out to the national unity government and not to reach out to local CSOs. I think it's a, I think it's important to connect with international NGOs and UN agencies, but I don't think that the, that the donor community should be relying solely on the input and feedback of international NGOs and UN agencies. And in terms then, Shane, of the, the civil disobedience movement, do you see that as, as continuing, as, as being possible to continue? Do you see it as being effective? I, I think it was extremely effective at the beginning, and I think it is still effective to a, to, a, to a certain extent. But I think that a lot of people are under financial pressure now, and I think many of those people who are under financial pressure feel like they have no option but to return to work. But I do think that a sufficiently large number of people will remain engaged with the civil disobedience movement. I think for a lot of people, there's no going back, right? I mean, a lot of these people who've been involved in the civil disobedience movement um, have been have had their names added to the list of people who face charges under the penal code. So for them, there's, there's not really much of an option. <clears throat> I think the civil disobedience movement can be sustained. I think that more money is needed for those people. And I think also the national unity government should probably look at putting in place a strategy for supporting those people, a more formal strategy, because in the end, 
if the national unity government is going to be successful in achieving recognition as the as a legitimate government of Myanmar, they're going to need civil servants. Um, so they should begin to act as though those people are working for the national unity government, and they should begin to look at ways that they can support them as well. And just in terms of the national unity government, there is still a little, I guess, reluctance from some people to to fully get behind them or, or support them. And I guess because, you know, a lot of the national unity government were former um, NLD, uh, you know, they were, you know, a lot of things happened under their watch, too. Uh, and a lot of people feel reluctant. Like, what would you say to people who are maybe reluctant in terms of is the is the NUG their best hope? Should everyone get on board with them? Or is there an alternative? Well, I mean, look, I totally understand that not everybody supports the national unity government. Not everybody voted for the NLD. And there are a lot of valid uh, concerns about the national unity government and about certain figures within the national unity government based on their on their past record in terms of being somewhat, I suppose, complicit in some of the actions that Tatmadaw was engaged in against the Rohingya in particular. So I can, I can certainly understand that. At the same time, I think that the national unity government is the best chance that Myanmar has right now. And I would encourage people to consider supporting the national unity government because it's my view that the, the easiest way to find a resolution to what's happening in um, in Myanmar is for the government, the civilian government, to be recognized as a legitimate government. And if that's going to happen, then they need to have support. So the way the way I see it, right, since the election, you've already had a lot of work done on this um, on on preparing like a federal constitution. You've already seen steps to develop a um, united federal army. You've seen a lot of ministries that have been established and nobody's ever going to be fully 100% satisfied with the composition of any government. So there's going to be a lot of controversy in, in most countries around election time. But I think that, that the national unity government is the best chance that Myanmar has at the moment. And I would like to, what I would like to see is a situation where the national unity government works on restoring democracy in Myanmar. And then once that's achieved, they can engage hopefully in a process of consultation and engagement with other stakeholders and they can look at how they can properly reform the political system in Myanmar in order to make more space for people who are not very well represented. So people from different minority groups, you know, they need to have more Muslims in government because the number of Muslims in government is not a reflection of of the proportion of the population who are Muslim. And in any case, they should have representation of these minorities who have been discriminated against and oppressed in the past. But, you know, based on the limited engagement that I've had with people who are involved in the national unity government, I think that progress is being made. And I think that, I, like I said, I think it's the best bet. I think that the NLD needs to also change its attitude because I can, I can already see here in Sydney, for example, that the, the CRPH, the support group or the support groups around the country are really trying to put the stamp of NLD and the stamp of CRPH on protests and on other anti-coup events. And it's not winning them any friends. 
I think a lot of people would prefer for them just to, rather than to make this a an NLD political issue, would prefer for them to focus on restoring democracy and then moving forward um, once democracy is restored. So yeah, I think a lot of people are skeptical of the NLD and of the CRPH, but I think it's the best shot that they have. And like typical question, but where do you see things going from here? Like where where is Myanmar in six months' time or a year's time? Do you think? It's really difficult to say because really what needs to happen if there's going to be any progress is that a number of things need to happen. But one of the one of the one thing that I think would make a huge difference is would be that um, would be if China changes its stance. I, I don't expect China to change its stance, but I think that the, the biggest difference that could be made right now would be for China to, to cease its support for the state administrative council because they have now begun using language which suggests that they consider that they are, you know, it, it's policy now to consider General Min online as the leader of Myanmar. And they're, they're using language which kind of suggests that they feel that the the SAC is the legitimate government. So I don't really expect a lot of change from, from China. I think that it's really important that Western states or, you know, states which are not really necessarily aligned begin to recognize Myanmar, the national unity government as the legitimate government of Myanmar. After all, they've won two elections, uh, two landslide elections. The Tatmadaw has not produced any evidence of large-scale fraud. They have a democratic mandate. In the past, we've had cases where, um, if you take Libya, for example, in 2011, the National Transitional Council was recognized by 140 countries as the legitimate government of Libya, yet they had no democratic mandate. And it's funny because a lot of the people I've spoken to, diplomats and politicians, they've all, they, they've all say the same thing. Even people who support Myanmar, they say Australia doesn't recognize uh, governments, it recognizes states. But if you go to Google and if you Google NTC, um, National Transitional Council, Libya and recognition, you will find statements from the then Minister for Foreign Affairs from Australia explicitly stating that they recognize the NTC as the legitimate government of Libya. You'll find a statement from the Irish government saying the same thing, from the then Minister for Foreign Affairs, who I think was Eamon Gilmore, who's currently, I think he's he's heading up um, the EU's human rights body. <clears throat> so he also issued a statement explicitly recognizing the NTC as the legitimate government of Libya. So I think that the international community really needs to get behind the NUG and they need to recognize them as the legitimate government. If that happens, I think it, it could make a significant impact on, on the, the trajectory of the events in, in Myanmar. I think it would, it would seriously undermine the, the, the military and it would force them to, to rethink things. And maybe they would realize at that point that they need to find a, um, an off ramp, so to speak. But if that doesn't happen, if, if China doesn't change its, uh, its policy, if the international community is, continues to be ineffective in terms of, uh, supporting the national unity government, I think what we're going to see then is potentially a civil war, which is countrywide. I mean, we're already seeing, you know, we saw, I think yesterday in Yangon, we had six or seven bomb blasts in the space of an hour. 
Um, it's not clear who's, who's doing that. It could be people's defense forces, you know, anti, anti coup actors, or it could be the Tatmadaw themselves. We don't, nobody really knows. Nobody appears to be claiming responsibility. At least in some cases, nobody's claiming responsibility. So what we could see is basically a deterioration in the security situation over there. We, we could see quite intense fighting, quite a lot of bloodshed. I believe that the, COVID situation is beginning to get a little bit out of control in the Myanmar as well, and the healthcare system doesn't work anymore. So you're going to be faced with a you now the perfect storm of a civil war and a pandemic, you know, involving a deadly virus. Then you'll begin to see refugee outflows. You'll begin to see increases in illegal activity like human trafficking and trafficking of weapons and trafficking of narcotics to kind of fund the conflict. And it could go on for a very long time. And it's not going to benefit anybody. It won't benefit China. It's not going to benefit the Thais. It's not going to benefit the Bangladeshis. So I think it's time that the, that the international community, that people like, you know, regional actors like China and India took a step back and really looked at what this, what this means for them, for the region, for security, for the economy of the region, for trade, all of these things. There was a point in time where I considered India's presence um, on the UN Security Council as something that could be potentially very positive. But I've discovered recently, as a result of this uh, crisis in Myanmar, that they their priorities are very far from aligned with uh, global consensus on human rights and basic human rights law, you know, their responsibility to give safe haven to refugees. They've, they've also, they participated in armed forces day with the Tatmadaw and Napidaw on the day that something like 80 or 90 people were murdered by the Tatmadaw. They have, they're pushing for the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh to be forced back into Myanmar now while, while it's under control, under the control of the same people who tried to commit genocide against them. And yeah, they're, they, Actually, they abstained in yesterday's UN General Assembly resolution vote because they felt that the resolution didn't reflect their views. And the resolution basically said that we condemn the, the, the coup in Myanmar, that we want to see a halt to weapons uh, that are flowing to the Tabatol, and we want to see political prisoners released and a return to democracy. That's basically what it said. So India doesn't feel that those points reflect their view because I guess they don't agree that they that there should be an end to the arms flow. They don't agree that there should be a return to democracy. They don't agree. I'm already quite sure what they do, um, what their view is. It's clear what their view is not, that they, they do view themselves as being in a position where they should not support the people of Myanmar. And just picking up on that then, do the UN have any role to play? Are, are, the, are the UN redundant? Like, have they just become ineffective as an organization? They have failed in terms of the Rohingya crisis. Are, are they failing again? Or do, do the military just not care? You have to start questioning the role of the UN and is it totally ineffectual? Yeah. Look, you know, there are a number of these concepts which, which have come up over the years, right? Because the UN, the, the international community in the UN have had a number of extremely damaging failures um, when it comes to protecting civilian populations, particularly in cases where they're where they need protection against their own government or against forces within their own borders. So it's not an international issue necessarily. So, you know, you had the, the, the conflict in Sri Lanka where the government decided that they were going to finish off the Tamil Tigers and they had this huge offensive. They committed crimes against humanity uh, during that time, mass killings. They rounded up people and put them into camps. They assassinated 
humanitarian workers. And at the time, the some of the international NGOs who were based in, in Sri Lanka at the time were they were complying with the with the orders of, of the of the Sri Lanka government, and they were complying with the they were complicit in the strategy of the um, of the Sri Lanka government, and this resulted in a lot of soul searching, and eventually there was an initiative that was developed in response to this, which was known as the Human Rights Upfront Initiative. And the Human Rights Upfront Initiative basically said that whatever the UN does, they should that that. The protection of basic human rights should be their first priority in every situation. And this was, this was because they wanted the, the intention was to prevent a repeat of what happened in Sri Lanka. So when it, when the genocide happened against the uh, Rohingya, a lot of people had, a lot of people working within the UN system were familiar with and they backed this, um, human rights upfront initiative and they, were making a lot of noise about what was happening in Rakhine State and about the plight of the Rohingya. But ultimately, the UN is a political body and they have political goals and a political agenda. And they were inclined to kind of take a, an accommodating stance towards the Tatmadaw. And they didn't do as much as they could have done um, in terms of pressuring the Tatmadaw to stop what was happening against the Rohingya. And the same with international NGOs. International NGOs provided services in those camps. I worked in those camps. And an argument has been made that that makes us complicit in what happened to the Rohingya back in 2016 to 2017. So I think it's clear that the United Nations has failed the people of Myanmar over and over and over again. The, the question is then, you know, are they effective right now? You have the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. Uh, the five permanent members being the US, the UK, France, Russia, and China. Each of those members on the Security Council is a permanent member and has a veto right. So the situation we're faced with in the Security Council is that there's a deadlock that basically Russia and China are backing the Tatmadaw. They're, they're not in favor of supporting the national unity government. They're not in favor of doing anything to try to bring the situation under control. So the UN Security Council is completely ineffective and totally neutered in this in this regard. There are a lot of people in you know involved in the UN Security Council from different national missions who are doing as much as they can and who would love to be able to do more, but they they just can't. So it's not that they don't care, but it's just that the system doesn't work. And it's clear that the system doesn't work at all. So yeah, I think that the I think that the UN has proven itself to be completely ineffective and almost pointless in this situation. And that's, and that's tragic. I would like to see the UN take a more principled approach. I'm not an expert on these things, but I've spoken to a number of, a number of experts, um, in recent weeks about this, this particular issue. And what I've been told is that the, um, secretary general needs to do more and the secretary general's, uh, to rapporteur needs to that even Ban Ki-moon, the former Secretary General, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, has come out and has been critical of the current UN Secretary General because he hasn't done enough. So the, his, the views that I'm getting from a lot of people from the kind of diplomatic community, the views are that the Secretary General himself needs to go to Myanmar and, and be there as a, as a presence to show just how seriously the UN is taking the issue, but he, he hasn't been active enough. So yeah, the, the UN has not been 
particularly effective in, in this case, and I don't really expect them to be effective going forward either. So do you see the only way to, the only pe- person or people who can solve uh, Myanmar's problem are the Myanmar people themselves? Is that the realization everyone is coming to? I mean, yeah, ultimately, they are the, they are the people with, um, they have most at stake. They are the people whose democratic views were completely ignored by the Tatmadaw. They're the people whose families are suffering under the Tatmadaw. And it's a pity because you would like to think that when you have doctrines like the responsibility to protect, that, that those doctrines will actually be put into practice and, and that the international community will protect civilians who are under threat and who are at risk from their, from their own government. And so then, um, what's next for you guys then, Shane? What's next on your agenda or what do you plan in the next while or, or, or do you know yet? And so we've got a fundraiser coming up in Canberra in August and we have another fundraiser coming up in northern New South Wales which is going to be happening within the next couple of weeks and then the next the, the next big thing is a seminar on recognition so we're planning to hold a seminar on recognition of the national unity government in sometime in mid-August and so the idea is going to be to invite experts in the in this particular field we're looking at possibly bringing on some kind of involvement from the an organization known as the Independent Diplomats ID, who which is a body of um, former diplomats that supports entities like the NUG in um, achieving recognition. So we're going to try and bring them on board. We're going to bring in some politicians, diplomats, activists. We'll, we'll bring people in from the National Unity Government and from the CRPH. And the plan is just basically to put forward the case for recognition of the national unity government and to discuss how that might be best achieved. Um, you know, what's the best strategy for pushing for recognition? Right now in, in Australia, there's a, there's a group of people, some of whom are linked to the Australian Myanmar Institute, um, and they're basically pushing for bottom-up recognition, so recognition from state-level parliaments and then eventually recognition from federal parliament. So that's what they're pushing for. But we're going to look at different strategies and we're going to look at maybe capitalizing on these Friends of Myanmar groups that have been established in different parliaments around the world to see if we can have a more kind of a global coordinated approach. The the good thing is that many of the people who have been appearing on our panels for these podcasts that we've been having are literally leaders in this particular area, in this particular field. We have people who are actually right now actively helping the national unity government on these issues. So that's a good thing. Like we're, we, we have people who are well connected and who are already working on, um, on these issues and we'll bring them together and we'll, you know, facilitate a discussion, a more in-depth discussion. And hopefully that will uh, gain some media coverage and, and maybe it will help to support the efforts that are ongoing in Australia to get rec- recognition for the NUG. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're doing great stuff. And I know it means a lot for people to hear that, you know, in Myanmar who maybe aren't aware. So uh, hopefully, you know, if they hear this podcast, they'll know what you guys are doing and they'll feel yeah. um, supported, you know, um, because it does get quiet for them as well with information coming in as, as yeah. well as us coming out. So I think that's really good. But that was really great, Shane. And it's, it's, um, yeah. explained a lot, uh, there for us. And it's really great. You guys are doing great work. It's, it's super. Yeah. But yeah, it was great chatting to you, Shane, and uh, I hope you feel better soon. Yeah, likewise, Suzanne. <laughs>
Thank you. And thank you too, Ruth. Oh, yeah, you guys thank enjoy you so much. It's been so informative. I know I've been very quiet, but I've just been listening and learning and taking it all in. So thank you so oh, yeah, much. That's, it's really interesting. No, you're, you're, no, you're more than welcome. Uh, I'm happy to take part in any discussions on the Atmar, you know, anything that, that kind of, anything that keeps it in the spotlight and anything that informs people and helps to kind of demystify things. I'm happy to do it. All right, guys. Have Thank a great you. day. Enjoy your Bye. summer. Enjoy your Bye. summer afternoon over there. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Arnar Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at Arnar Podcast, spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow, and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.